This is Soul Searching, your weekly radio program where you and I delve into all the important spiritual matters that matter. I'm Tom Budge, your host for the next hour. Today we take a special look at LGBTI issues in the Islamic faith. As is the case in so many other religions, Islam is not without its challenges when it comes to integrating gay, lesbian and transgender people into the religion. Stay with me as we take a look into what the Quran has to say about homosexuality and we'll chat with Musin Hendricks, who is an openly gay imam and the executive director of the Inner Circle, an organization whose mission it is to bring healing to Muslims who are marginalized because of their sexual orientation and gender identity. Musin, thank you so much for being here with us on the show. Tell me a little bit about your background. So I grew up in a small town in Cape Town. Uh, at that time, it used to be called Lansdowne. It's now called, or it used to be called Sambokland, and now it's called Lansdowne. Um, and I, did, the community that was around me was very Orthodox Muslim. Yeah. And my my grandfather was the Imam of the mosque, and the mosque was like a stone's throw away from my house. And my mother was a teacher in the mosque, so I was very connected to the mosque from the time I was born. And so growing up in that very orthodox environment and very soon coming to realize around the age of five that I'm very different from other boys, um, and then hearing, you know, my grandfather preaching from the pulpit that, you know, Mofis are going to go to hell and, you know, all of these things. And it, it kind of, at the same time, was teaching that, God is most compassionate, most merciful. In my childhood brain already, that was confusing for me because I didn't choose to be like this, but yeah. why would this compassionate and merciful God reject me? Indeed. So I grew up with that and not being able to to talk to anybody about it because there are no safe spaces around these issues at that time when I grew up. So it was really only, <laughs> it was really only at the age of 18 that I decided that I wanted to study this religion more because I knew already at that time that it wasn't a choice for me to to say, okay, this religion doesn't accept me, I'm out of here. It was very much part of my identity, part of my growing up, and so I wanted to make sense out of that. So, Musin, uh, you had rather a supportive mum, and um, you kind of knew that you uh, had a faith that you needed to adhere to. Um, you went to Karachi, and you studied there from about 1996 onwards. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, no, as I was growing up and going through my studies in Pakistan, that it was it was becoming a calling for me, that it was something that I needed to do. It was not just about myself. It's about, you know the injustice that are perpetrated in the name of Islam. And so constantly the conversations that I would have with my mother is, you know, she would say, you know, are you again in the papers now? You know, can't you just settle down with your boyfriend? And then there was a private life. If it was that easy, I would have done that. But it's, it's not just about me. So was mom always so supportive? She struggled with it quite quite a bit in the beginning. Um, but I think uh, I, can, I can remember when the day when I told her, she actually collapsed. And uh, so I knew that it wasn't an easy thing for her to deal with. But when she came out of that, the conversations we had was around, it was not around, you know, she rejecting me as a son, but more, how do I answer to my community? Because because she's also a, a woman of good standing in our Muslim community because she, you know, she used to teach women and prepare them for the pilgrimage and stuff like that. So it's quite an honor to 
to be in her position and she was always worried about that. But I think slowly as she was working through that, um, I mean, she said to me, you know, you're my son and I will never throw you away, but can you just settle down and just tell her that it's not about me. It's about, it's about a calling that I have to, to contribute towards the injustices, to eradication of the injustices in our, in our Muslim community. And yes. homosexuality is just one of them. We're talking about LGBTI issues in the Islamic faith, and I'm having a chat with Musin Hendricks. He's the executive director of the Inner Circle. Islam is the second largest religion in the world with a population of 1.6 billion Muslims. That's around 23% of the world's population. This population is spread through Latin America, North America, Europe, with a larger population being found in Africa, Middle East, and also in the Asia-Pacific region. The story in the Quran that sets the scene for dealing with uh, homosexuality uh, has to be the story of the people of Lot. There are seven references in the Quran to the story, and it is a story of non-consensual sex between men. But it is not just the Quran that is read on its own. Uh, there are also the hadith. These are the sayings and actions of the Prophet Muhammad. And there are writers that go back as far as the 12th century that claim that Muhammad had cursed homosexuals. Uh, and several of these hadith had recommended the death penalty for both the active and passive partners in homosexual acts. So this means that there's not really a lot of clarity uh, when it comes to dealing with homosexuality. Uh, there is the death penalty in many of the Muslim states like Afghanistan, Iran, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. It's absolutely illegal in Algeria, the Maldives, Malaysia, and Syria, yet it is completely legal in 20 other countries where there is a Muslim majority. A handful of countries are contemplating same-sex marriages, and these are Albania, Tunisia, Lebanon, and Turkey. Strangely enough, lesbianism is okay in Kuwait and Uzbekistan, but not male homosexuality. This has left many queer Muslims feeling alienated from their communities and rejected by God, friends, and their families. So Musin, with such uh, diverse opinions spread, spread across the Islamic world, uh, with the Quran talking uh, in conjunction with the Hadith about uh, the death penalty, how does one actually reconcile all of this? Yeah, I think the whole problem starts with the with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and how it's been interpreted in the Quran as a blanket condemnation for homosexuality. And I think it's very important that that as a scholar of, of, of the Quran, that we need to be very fair when we engage with the Quran. We can't be selective in saying that, you know, oh, these rules apply for other stories, but it doesn't apply for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, my point of departure is always that you, if you want to make an interpretation of, of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, go through all those nine verses that talks about the story. Look at the, because sometimes it's being repeated in different, uh, in different chapters. And why is it that it's being repeated? Because it's, it's, it's used as another example of uh, social injustices, for example. 
And so paste all these stories together in the Quran and then you make an interpretation. The other thing that we also need to consider is that there's something that we call Asbabun Nuzul, you know, the reason for revelation. At what point in the in the Prophet's journey and his mission did these verses come to him? You know? And then the other thing we also have to realize about the Quran is that the Quran is written in poetic form. And so with poetry, I mean, there comes very interpretations, and I think that's the beauty of the Quran. And the Quran reminds us constantly, you know, that when you do make an interpretation, make the interpretation so that it becomes a healing and a mercy to, to people. Mm-hmm. And so how does a very harsh interpretation of that story where people have to be put to death becomes mercy and compassion, you know, towards them? And then the last thing I want to say about Solomon Gamori is that <clears throat> when you look at the the whole story pieced together with the um, the archaeological findings, with the the way the story is being recorded in history and other traditions, including Christianity, then you then you cannot help but conclude that the, that this, the issue is not about sexual orientation. In fact, the Quran is silent about sexual orientation. The story is about the abuse of sexual power, mm. and so the so so it 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 boils down to how did this community use or misuse power and privilege, and sex became only one of the tools that they used to do that. So to make the story just about homosexuality is 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 quite unfair, and we're not saying that homosexuality didn't exist in the time of of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, it did. I mean, it's been there for. Forever. This is so fascinating. But that, that's not the that that's not the, the, the atrocity, that's not the condemnation. But it's about the abuse of sexual power. Because we also look at the, the story of uh, Lot uh, being asked to give up his daughters for temple prostitution. There's the injustice against women also, you know. Again, sex is also being used as powerful power. Are you saying that these texts are advising sexual continence rather than being texts that are about law and punishment. Absolutely. It's how we conduct ourselves around around the privilege of sex, for example. And I mean, that goes across the gender and sexuality spectrum. That goes for everybody in society. So, Mohsen, it's never really easy for people to come to terms with their uh, sexual differences in a world that uh, can be quite bigoted at times. But what really worries me is that, uh, you know, it's one thing having to deal with uh, with family that reject you or don't understand you. But uh, when your own religion doesn't understand you, that's uh, rather difficult. And uh, what advice do you have for young um, Muslims who are sort of coming to terms with their own sexuality? That's that's double stigma and discrimination, right? So uh, my advice would be is that the whole the whole reason why we are sitting with this problem of homosexuality in the 21st century is because there has been a lack of research information in the last thousand years of Islamic history. I mean, we when you ask classical scholars or orthodox scholars around the issue of homosexuality, they quote um, consensus of of scholars that have lived a thousand years ago. I mean, we have moved on so much. New research has come out, scientific findings have come out around where we are in terms of sexual orientation and gender identity. And that needs to be brought into the interpretation. 
And so the information that's lacking, I mean, we have a lot of uh, progressive scholars that have done some work on sexual orientation and gender identity. So find them and find, you know, where, the, where, where is the information that is missing for you to be able to reconcile your faith with your sexual orientation and gender identity. And get in touch with the inner circle. I mean, we, if we can put you in touch with, with the information. I'd like to talk about the inner circle uh, in depth in just a moment. And I was uh, quite alarmed to read that over 4% of Muslims believe that queer Muslims should be killed. Uh, another statistic is that 9 out of 10 Muslims believe that homosexuality is a choice and that it is absolutely unacceptable for queer Muslims to express their sexual orientation, with half of queer Muslims being rejected by their family. Those are really horrible statistics. One thing I wanted to ask you, do you find that you come up against some robust debate from other scholars or maybe other imams uh, inside Islam? Uh, I think there's a love-hate relationship that uh, some of the scholars have with me. Um, I mean, if I can just quote one scholar, he was saying that, you know, that Imam didn't wine, but maybe we should just leave him alone because at least he's he's bringing uh, gay people to be, become God-conscious. <laughs> but at the same time, that they would not want to engage with me um, because they would rather, much rather want to avoid the issue of homosexuality. And so, I, I, I mean, we've been inviting um, religious uh, leaders to participate in our programs. We've got a, a program called the Forum for Spiritual Leaders at our annual international retreat, and we constantly struggle to get Orthodox um, uh, religious leaders to engage in that forum. Mm. So there's, a, there's an avoidance of, of the issue. Um, but I've never had uh, touch wood. I've never had any violent responses or, you know, people wanting to. Mm, that's a question I wanted to ask you. Mm, it's just in 2007 when we came out with a documentary called uh, A Jihad for Love. There was a sort of a fatwa passed by the Muslim Judicial Council to say that I'm out of the fold of Islam and people shouldn't watch this documentary because of propaganda. Um, but that's as far as it went. I've never heard from them again. Often. Now, Masin, transgender issues, are they dealt differently in Islam from homosexuality? <clears throat> yeah, I think it's very important also that we make it the distinguish between uh, transgender issues and, 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 and um, homosexual mm-hmm. issues. Because, um, and I think I think within the within the theology, within the Islamic jurisprudence, it's easier to deal with some of the transgender issues because it's spoken of, uh, because there's a, there's a physical, um, you know, evidence that, that uh, and I'm saying this in, in, in inverted commas, that there's something wrong with them and that can be fixed. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you look at uh, Iran, they allow um, and even encourage and support, supported by the government, uh, the um, uh, the surgery, you know, to to uh, change your gender, um, but that's that might on surface level look like it's progressive, but it's actually not progressive because it's forcing transgender people to fit into the binaries of of society, you know, the mm-hmm. gender binaries. And um, but then again, if you look at uh, Sunni Islam, um, there's also an acceptance of uh, uh, transgender. 
um, specifically when they show physical signs of, of looking like a woman, for example, a man looking like a woman. Yeah. Um, and then there's a particular place for that person to stand within the, in the, in the mosque. So, but when it comes to gay, I mean, it's like, you know, you guys are making a choice, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. You look okay. You know, you can't even have sex with a woman, but you just choose not to. And I think that's where, where we go wrong because we don't understand sexual orientation completely. In my research for this program, I came across one of the hadith that said, the prophet cursed effeminate men, those men who are in the similitude and those women who assume the manners of men. And he said, turn them out of your houses. Yeah, you know, when it comes to the question of hadith, we need to be very careful because Hadith that is uh, used by imams, it's often not, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll give you the, the, the text, but they don't give you the, the, the chain of narrators, for example, mm. and also the classification of hadith. I mean, not all hadith is considered authentic. There are many, many hadith that are considered uh, weak and, and sometimes not acceptable. And there are also volumes of hadith that was written that was actually fabricated. Now, most of the hadiths, now this is what I discovered in my research, that most of the hadith that are quoted um, against people uh, that sort of commit sodomy um, or dress up like women or, and women dressing up like men um, are by most scholars considered as, as fabricated hadith but they are still being used. To say that last part again, I didn't quite catch it. What I was saying is that most of these hadith that yeah. are being used by Orthodox scholars in the mosque from the pulpit is considered as fabricated. Oh, I see what you say. Mm. Yeah. Now, Masin, it was uh, something like two years later when you'd returned from Karachi that you decided to form a group to help uh, people who who were going through the same kind of stuff as you were and to pass your insights onto them. And I just love these kind of stories where uh, things start to happen in a person's garage, you know. The, uh, but that's the, exactly how it kind of happened for you, wasn't it? There's uh, wonderful things that happen out of a isn't garage. Isn't it just, hey? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think in the beginning when I, uh, I wasn't really interested in, in meeting people to, you know, to kind of save them or something like that. But, I mean, I was at the height of my gayness also, and I thought I just wanted to meet with people that are similar to me. But when I actually sit, sat down and engaged with these people, I was like, I'm, I'm fortunate to have figured this out for myself, that there's nothing wrong with me, but most of the, the gays and lesbians that I met at that time were suffering because they were not able to reconcile faith with sexual orientation and gender identity. For them, these were completely two, it was an oxymoron to use queer and Muslim in the same sentence, you know. And it's, it, and it's out of that that I felt the need to, to say to them constantly, but hey, have you looked at this? And I, but, but this mom says something differently. And that's how I really started to have uh, these weekly discussions with uh, gays and lesbians in my area. And from this uh, emerged the Inner Circle, which has uh, quite a nice international reputation too. Absolutely. I mean, we started out as the Alfitra Foundation, and then we went up to, I went up to Johannesburg after I was fired from one of the mosques. 
went up to Johannesburg, met up with another group called the Gay Muslim Outreach, mm. and together we formed the, the Inner Circle. And six years later, after I've done my research, um, I started to do my trainings more formally, and that's when I moved back to Cape Town um, to, to set up the office for the Inner Circle. A year later, it was an international organization. Wow, so it provides what kind of service to Muslim men and women? Well, there are multiple services. Um, I think on a, um, uh, well, let's let's put it like this. The, it's, it's basically two-pronged. Um, one is to give support to queer Muslims. So we have training and counseling facilities uh, to help Muslims to reconcile faith with sexual orientation and gender identity. And uh, most often, we, uh, at least for the last few years, we've had families also coming in uh, for counseling, um, you know, and we try to mend the relationship between family and, and, and the uh, queer children. Um, so that support is there. We also keep a small amount of money separately for uh, queer Muslims who are ostracized from their family. Sometimes mm-hmm. they are disowned um, and they've been being left on the streets um, or they've been fired from a job or something like that. And so we keep that fund to support them. Then on a more on a macro level, we uh, have a lot of training programs uh, for the Muslim community to help them to rethink, you know, the the uh, stance on 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 um, homosexuality and so on. So it's really trying to help the Muslim community to overcome the homophobia and the transphobia. And annually, we uh, we have the uh, training of trainers program, whereby we bring between six and eight. Uh, activists from all over the world. We bring them down to Cape Town for a three-month program, and then I train them in that three months uh, how to deliver a workshop in their own context um, on Islam, sexual orientation, and gender identity. And then that culminates into the annual international retreat that normally happens in October, where I bring 120 activists together um, and we talk about and strategize about um, how we can build this movement. And the theme of this movement is to to realize an Islam that is that is compassion centered and all inclusive. Mm, I can see why you said that this is a calling and um, uh, also a lot of work, a lifetime's worth of work. Well, just another question that popped into my mind: uh, given the robust constitution that we have here in South Africa that protects gay rights, um, does this make any difference when it comes to? negotiating between, say, say, more conservative and more liberal views inside Islam? Um, I don't think... Well, I would say that the Constitution has been hugely... Um, I'm hugely grateful for the Constitution because it's not possible for me to do this kind of work from any other country. Wow, is that so? I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I think it's just been a blessing to have the inner circle starting out in Cape Town. And it's because of our constitution. I mean, I can count up, I've probably since 2009 have done about 30 uh, uh, gay marriages. Um, and it's because of, of the protection we have around our constitution. Gosh, it shows how biased even my thinking is because I hadn't even contemplated that there were any gay marriages that had taken place in Islam. And uh, you say that uh, you'd facilitated some 30 of them.
but in terms of in terms of uh, the constitution helping muslims to kind of rethink the stance on homosexuality i think uh, it didn't really change much um except for the fact that they are less violent towards uh, gay people because i mean they can get in trouble for that but they're still they're still preaching from the pulpit that homosexuality is is haram it's forbidden um so within those muslim communities i mean sentiments haven't changed much Mohsen, just as we wind up our show for today uh what is your message then to muslims who are in the lgbti a group of people uh, and who face difficulty with their faith in Islam. I just want to reiterate the point that it's really, really important for queer Muslims to get in touch with the structures that are supporting them. I mean, there's not just Orthodox Islam, there's also progressive Islam, and it's kind of growing by the day. And so get in touch with more progressive uh, and religious leaders and structures that can support you as a, as a queer Muslim. I think that's really crucial. I mean, we also have a mosque at our office, so people will feel that they're not feeling safe and, you know, in, in, and welcomed in mosques. Um, there are alternative spaces in which they can pray. So they need to use that. Do I understand it correctly that your presence is then only in Cape Town and not in the other provinces? Uh, we are in the other provinces also, but only in terms of uh, support groups. Not really, not really offices, yeah. yeah. Um, but if people get in touch with us and they are from outside of Cape Town, we will be able to connect them to those spaces. Mohsen, I know how busy you are, and we're ever so grateful that you could spend this time with us. We've learned a lot from you. We wish you all of the best. And, um, yeah, we'll put out some of the website uh, details and your contact details at the Inner Circle. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We've been talking to Musin Hendricks. He's a gay imam here in South Africa. He's also the executive director of the Inner Circle. You can find them on website address www.theinnercircle.org.za. There is also a switchboard number. It's a South African number, plus 27, and it is in Cape Town, 021-761-0037. If you wish to write an email to the Inner Circle, then please address it to communications at theinnercircle.org.za. I learned a lot from the show, and I hope you did too. My name is Tom Budge. I'll see you here on this station, Gay SA Radio, again next week at the same time. You'll find a podcast version of the show on the website www.gaysaradio.co.za I'd love to hear from you. You can get hold of me at studio at gaysaradio.co.za and also via the station's various social media platforms. Let me leave you with a thought for the week. The most fundamental aggression to ourselves The most fundamental harm we can do to ourselves is to remain ignorant by not having the courage and the respect to look at ourselves honestly and gently. This is a message from Pima Khodron. She's a Buddhist nun. I'm Tom Budge. Until next time, goodbye.